This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I know that some of you um, were here in September when we started this year's um, Taubman Symposium in Jewish Studies. Uh, you may remember that we started with a very, very distinguished diplomat by the name of Ambassador Dennis Ross. Uh, this, this, this afternoon, we're finishing, completing this uh, year's programming with probably one of the most distinguished American historians of the Jews uh, at work today, um, and a man who I've known really for almost half a century, I think, almost half a century. Um, and we haven't aged. We, um, so uh, Stephen Zipperstein, uh, as you see from the brochure, is the Daniel E. Koshland Professor in Jewish Culture and History at Stanford University. And over the course of his career, he has taught at, the uni- at universities in Russia, Poland, France, um, England, and Israel. For 16 years, he was the director of the Jewish Studies Program, the director of the Taub Center for Jewish Studies at Stanford University, and he is the author and editor of nine books, including, uh, and all of them are just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, I wrote extraordinary after each of the, each of the books, um, but... Um, In 1986, he published The Jews of Odessa, A Cultural History, which won a national uh, award in in the field of Jewish studies. Um, His elusive uh, prophet, Achada Am and the Origins of Zionism, which he published in 1993, uh, was a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Imagining Russian Jewry, which he published in 1999, Uh, is a winner of the, um, uh, well, excuse me, Um, it was, uh, a a number of his books have been uh, awarded uh, some of the most prestigious prizes and awards in the field of Russian history, Jewish Jewish history. Um, However, he is also the editor of an extraordinary series of books. There are 45 of them. They're called the Jewish Lives series, um, I brought in one of the most recent ones. This is entitled Alfred Stieglitz, Taking Pictures, Making uh, Painters, uh, written by Phyllis Rose. There are 45 of these books on Jewish lives published in um, Yale University Press, and they're just absolutely I- extraordinary. Uh, he edits this um, uh, series of books with Anita Shapira um, and... Um, the National Jewish Book Council, for the first time, awarded it uh, a major award uh, for its contributions to uh, Jewish thought. Um, when we saw that um, Professor Zipperstein's latest book, Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History, and I love the subtitle, The Tilt of History, just an absolutely fantastic, I think, title and idea, um, we immediately invited him. I called him, I believe, on the phone, or I wrote to him immediately, uh, and we were fortunate enough to plan this event 
um, as the closure of our academic program of speakers this year. This book, Pogrom, which at the end of the uh, talk this afternoon is available through our good colleagues and friends at Chaucer's, and uh, Professor Zipperstein will sign the copies for you. I see that some of you have already purchased them. Um, um, so this book has been widely reviewed uh, in newspapers and magazines in the United States and England, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the New Statesman, Literary Review, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Economist to Arts, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Mosaic um, Magazine, and almost all of them have named it one of the best books of the year. So this is an extraordinary, extraordinary opportunity to learn about this event um, in uh, Bessarabia uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, um, the book provides an extraordinary rereading and interpretation of the Kishneyev violence. And Avishai Margalit concludes in his review of Pogrom in the current New York Review of Books um, by stating that Zipperstein, quote, goes beyond the statistics to offer a story, one both singular and significant, unquote. Anyone who has read a few paragraphs of anything that Zipperstein has written will immediately agree with uh, Avishai Margalit's statement about Stephen Zipperstein being a great storyteller. So I'd like to now invite you to welcome one of the great storytellers of Jewish history uh, currently at work. Please welcome Stephen Zipperstein. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to certainly disappoint you. Uh, you know, it's, I used to think of Rick Hecht as a friend. I, 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 I want to uh, thank Rick. Uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll talk loudly, and, and this will work. I mean, I, I, I haven't tested this among the full range of Gentile audiences, but I have noticed that among Jewish audiences in particular. There's always someone who says they can't hear you before you begin to speak. And uh, so I, I don't know if it's an ethnic inflection or, or, or not, but, but I, I have, I've been on a fairly extensive book tour, and I, I have tested this. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes that man who was brought along to the talk by his wife and who falls asleep, actually, after you speak for a moment or two. But, uh, but I, I probably shouldn't have said that. The... Uh, um, I, I want to thank Rick Hecht. Uh, I want to thank Maeve McCoy and the, the staff of Jewish Studies for being such marvelous hosts. I'll, um, what I'll do today is I'll um, speak a bit about the, the initial trajectory of this book, read a tiny bit from its beginning, um, then trace how it came about and its various pieces, because it's a study not only of the event itself, but primarily a study of how actually it etched itself onto history. Most, most of what happens in the past is forgotten. No doubt, for example, there were many African-American women, uh, presumably there were, was more than just Rosa Parks, who refused to um, um, stand up and give up that seat. But Rosa Parks 
that, that was etched onto history. And how something is etched onto history is really what my book is about. This actually was one of the um, uh, smallest anti-Jewish atrocities in um, late Tsarist history, and yet it's the one that is the most remembered. It's the best documented um, of all events probably in the Russian Jewish past and the most mythologized. So almost everything that tends to be known about it is factually wrong. Uh, I wrote this book, finished it, before the term fake news became ubiquitous, alas. Um, but in many ways, it really is about that phenomenon, the, um, the way in which fact competes with myth, the way in which history is full of pockmarks, and once you begin to tell a historical story, you, you begin to stutter. History, if you will, sounds like Jeb Bush. Myth sounds like the other guy. And, um, and that's the um, backdrop to um, this, this, this book. Let me read you from the beginning of it, uh, talk to you a little bit about how it came about and, um, and its main themes, and then perhaps I'll read from the last page or two, and then we'll open for discussion. And everyone just heard me, right? Good. Okay. Okay, it's working out. Um, little, if anything, regarding Kishnev's riot would be either clear-cut or simple. Meticulously documented then and later, it would inspire a veritable thicket of myths extending well beyond the confines of Jewish communal or political life. Its impact, surprisingly enough, felt on endeavors as varied as, as the pre-state Haganah or nascent Israeli army, the NAACP, and the protocols of the elders of Zion. Simple the story would not be, even in terms of its most obvious details from the moment it occurred. Hence the pertinence of the account of Sergei Urusov, appointed governor general of the Bessarabia province, Kishnev was its capital, to replace his disgraced successor soon after the pogrom. He relates in his memoirs how at the time of his appointment he knew as little about the region as he might have about faraway New Zealand and felt fortunate that a guidebook to the area had just been published. He pored over the book during his journey from Petersburg and carried it with him on his first few days in the provincial capital. He had the volume in hand as he made his way into the, one of the worst of the city's neighborhoods, known as Lower Kishnev or Old Town, the epicenter of the April anti-Jewish massacre. There, he writes, he sought the river that was reportedly nearby, quote, nearing the end of town. I vainly tried to see the river mentioned. For a long time, I could not bring myself to identify it with a little ill-smelling Ill pool in places not wider than a yard, without current, with no green on its banks. Thus, the first statement I gained from the experience of others that Kishnev was located on the river Beek proved to be incorrect. There is no river or even brook in Kishnev. The river Beek does indeed exist. A modest extension of the Diester River in the hot months of, of summer, when Urusov first saw it, it would in fact have been reduced to little more than a swamp. Still the passage haunts because the object of Urusov's frustration is a guide to Bessarabia, published in Moscow in 1903, written by one Pavel Khrushchevan, who was, who was soon also to publish and likely write or co-write the first version of the most infamous forgery in modern history, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Thus the image of Urusov, 
a well-intentioned Russian official quite sympathetic to Jews, hunting on a sweltering summer day for a river described in a book written by one of the world's most notorious fantasists, provides a bracing entree point for our tour of Kishinev too. I, I started this book as a, I signed a trade contract to write a survey of Russian and East European J Jewish history from the 18th century to the present. And to, to save myself from insomnia, I, 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 I sliced it into various parts and decided to devote three or four weeks to each of these parts. And the Kishna pogrom was simply one of those parts. And um, what I started to find was the, the, the way in which the event so insinuated itself into um, the understanding of the Jewish past by Jews, by Jew haters, by others, that I found it impossible to turn away from the topic. And what had started as a three-week, four-week, five-week foray ended up being a foray longer than I um, am willing to acknowledge. And um, I, I wrote the book, or I tried to write the book in such a way that at every turn it would teach something new to specialists but not um, lose non-specialists, and tested really every sentence along those lines. And what that meant was I just kept on cutting. I kept on cutting things that really I didn't need to say. Uh, Lucy Davidowitz, the, the uh, well-known Holocaust historian who I knew rather well when I was a graduate student, I remember turned to me and, 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 and said rather emphatically, she was a human being who said almost everything emphatically, um, she, she, she said, you don't need to actually tell people everything you know. And, um, and that proved to be a, a very useful uh, uh, lesson. Um, as I wrote this book and sought to write it without scanting its scholarly preoccupations, but without losing... Um, 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 the, the, the common reader, as Virginia Woolf called him or, or her, and, um, and who, still, um, who still very much exists and deserves, um, deserves books on, on history. I, um, I mean, the, the problem that I faced from the outset is this. The, um, this. There were some 47 Jews who died in the Kishinev pogrom, two later as a result of wounds incurred as a result of the pogrom. And yet the very meaning of pogrom, as we'll see in a few minutes, ended up being attached to this event. In contrast, some six to 800 Jews were killed on the streets of Odessa in, in October 1905, and yet Odessa was not, would not be known primarily, certainly, as a city of, of pogroms. Um, Probably as many as between 150 and 200,000 Jews were killed in the midst of the, the anarchy, the banditry um, that followed in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution between 19 and 1918 and 1921. And yet the towns in which they died, with, with almost no exceptions, remained, were remembered only by their, their descendants at best and by no one else. And yet this particular event... Etched, so etched itself onto history as to be the inspiration for such a wide variety of, of endeavors and institutions, and I sought to try to understand why. Some of the reasons are reasonably self-evident. First, um, chronology. It's the first anti-Jewish event 
um, of any significance that occurs at the beginning of the 20th century, a century that is presumed, we could look back at this somewhat ironically, uh, to usher in a time of peace, of harmony, of, 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 uh, to be a, a, a good century for Jews and, and for others. Um, um, so some of it has to do with, with simply chronology, the shock that this event actually happens at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, some of it has to do with ideology. Namely, this is the one Jewish event of the time that is embraced across the entire spectrum of enormously fractious Jewish ideological life. If anyone tells you from the local federation or elsewhere that Jews have always agreed on things, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. There's this notion that we are one, and yet there's that joke, uh, three Jews, four shuls. And, um, and um, the, at the turn of the, the, the 20th century, Jews were torn apart, and especially in the Russian, Russian Empire for a wide variety of reasons, by, by warring ideologies. Um, Zionists were torn apart by various um, sectors within Zionism. Um, uh, Jewish socialists, uh, territorialists who were looking for a home for Jews outside of, 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 of Palestine. Um, even, even movements that weren't avowedly Jewish, essentially were Jewish, um, like Esperanto, um, the effort to create a universal language. There was a, a popular joke that was told at the turn of the 20th century, and it goes something like this. What language is spoken in, at, at an Esperanto conference? And the answer is Yiddish. <laughs> the founder is a Jew from Warsaw. And basically, the, the bulk of the constituency are Jews hungry for universal, universalistic ideology and, and embra embracing Esperanto. This community was enormously divided along ideological lines. And yet Kishnev was, was the one event of the time that actually was embraced, embraced by all. And then there was technology. It, it was the first... Um, Jew, Jewish events, certainly the first Jewish catastrophe, that is actually captured in photographs. And uh, photography, of course, is invented some decades earlier, but it's, it's expensive. It's um, rarely employed by newspapers. Um, um, but newspapers, Jewish and other newspapers, um, 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 carry pictures of, of the Kishinev dead. And connected with that, ironically, um, I would suggest that the relatively small number of Jews killed also had its impact on etching the event onto history. Uh, there were some 47 Jews killed at the outset, as I mentioned before, and all of them could be and were uh, reproduced on a photograph that was widely distributed throughout, throughout the Western press, the Jewish press, and others. You can't reproduce 600 dead in a photograph. Uh, typologically, the phenomenon is something akin to the way in which the story of Anne Frank managed to communicate a tale of six million murdered. Six million is very, very difficult, almost inconceivable to think of, but you have one picture, one picture of tragedy, akin, uh, similar to that Syrian boy on the beach um, uh, that could capture the, the story of, of uh, that captured the attention of the world for about five minutes as to the, uh, the, 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 Syrian, the Syrian tragedy. The four, those 47 Jews were captured in, in photographs, reproduced um, in count, countless times uh, throughout the press in the Western world, the Jewish press and elsewhere. And so the relatively small number of Jews killed actually had its impact as, as well. And then, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, there were a whole variety of, of, of contingent reasons. The, the notion 
that history is predictable, that it's easy, that anything is easy, that, um, I mean, I, you turn on television today and you hear, you hear the most powerful person in, in the world talking about how everything is easy. But um, the, the notion that the, the, the past is easy is, 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 is nonsensical. There's massive amounts of contingency in, in almost any event, and you begin to generalize about an event that you know about, and you realize that you're talking near, near, near nonsense. Much of, much of the reason why Kishnev actually becomes um, an event that is well-known has to do with the location of the town, just about 100 miles um, um, east of um, the most porous of all um, Russian borders, the Romanian border, um, the area that's easiest to smuggle goods through and news through. And we'll see that news of the Kishnev pogrom is, is communicated with alacrity um, with an alacrity that would have been inconceivable had the same pogrom been 100 miles to the east of Kishnev, say, in Odessa. Um, uh, contingency also figures into um, the, um, the impact of climate on the pogrom. Pogroms, like revolutions, happen in temperate weather. And um, uh, the, the February Revolution of 1917 happens when the weather actually gets better. And, um, and, and, and as it happens, the second and most vicious day of the pogrom, it was raining until about 6 a.m. Had the rain continued into, into the afternoon, almost certainly the pogrom wouldn't have occurred as, as it occurred. And so the role of contingency is enormously important. But there are all sorts of other reasons and other reasons that I dug up over the course of the last several years that made this event into the event that it, that it was. Um, the first has to do with the interplay between, um, between um, government and Kishinev being a, a hotbed of far-right anti-Semitism. Um, Anti-Semites in late imperial Russia come in many different shapes and sizes. And there was a category in late imperial Russia called a, a respectable anti-Semite. And um, you, um, someone who actually could pass in public, someone who actually wasn't, someone who didn't believe, for example, that Bayless um, had, had, had engaged, had killed a child and engaged in ritual murder. Um, there's a, a story that the uh, eventual president of, of Israel, the first president, Chaim Weizmann, tells in his, uh, in his memoirs, um, uh, Chaim Weizmann in the mid-30s, in, in a moment of indiscretion, tells the Jewish telegraphic agency that the goal of Zionism is not to create a state. And he's thrown out of the presidency of the Zionist movement it, for like a year or two. But he continues to run it, and then he's brought back in. Um, anyway, so he's sitting with a bunch of friends uh, when it's clear that he's going to be thrown out of the presidency. And he tells the following story about an, 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 what, an, 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 a respectable anti-Semite. He says he's traveling in a train when he's a young man, and he's in a carriage, and sitting across from him is a respectable anti-Semite. That's the term he uses. And the person tells Chaim Weizmann what he does. And then he turns to the young Chaim Weizmann, and he says, well, what do you do? Now, remember, this is a joke. Okay. And Chaim Weizmann is telling this in a moment, a great exasperation, when the, the Jews in his movement have turned on him. So you'll remember that in a moment. And um, so the, man, the, 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 on, the honest anti-Semite, the respectable anti-Semite, turns to Chaim Weizmann and says, what do you do? And Chaim Weizmann tells him. And the pe person wags his finger at Chaim Weizmann. 
and the crucial, the crucial part of the story is that he wags his finger. He wags his finger at Chaim Weizmann, and he says, you better watch out for those Jews. If you turn your back on them, they'll kill you. And um, so um, the, 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 the Kishnev, in contrast, was an epicenter of some of the most extreme anti-Semites in, in Russia for a whole variety of reasons having to do with the way in which the area had been acquired by Russia, the way in which it, it seemed, it, um, it seemed it, it, the, 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 the fear that Romania was still interested in, in, in reacquiring it. Austria-Hungary was just at its, at its north. It, it was a, a territory that was a mutt of, of sorts. And, um, and this um, generated all kinds of xenophobic feelings, and, and many of them focused in on, on, on Jews. Um, what we're now able to reconstruct is that on the eve of the pogrom, um, a clutch of extreme anti-Semites were at work on a, a book um, that was drawn almost word for word from a rather obscure anti-Napoleon III volume published in France in, France in 1863. And instead of attacks on Napoleon III, in, they in, injected the word Jew. And we have all kinds of linguistic fingerprints as to how this text actually originates in this region. There's, um, there's, all, there's all kinds of constructions that are indigenous to this region. For example, the word goy or Gentile, which you could imagine is used often in this document, and I'm talking about the first version of the Protocols, the Elders of Zion, is, um, is Goyevsky, which is the Ukrainian usage, as, a, as opposed to Goysky, which is the Russian one. The prepositions are different. All these cleansed in subsequent book, book, book versions. They're at work on this, on this text, and then suddenly the Kishnev pogrom breaks out, to some extent the work of this, of this clutch of anti-Semites, and the entire world is focused on it. It dominates headlines throughout the world. The Hearst Press actually is, is, is obsessed with it, with headlines about it day after day. Um, it, it's condemned by Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who does not condemn lynching in, in the United States and yet condemns the pogroms, uh, this pogrom in, in Russia. In other words, here is, as these, this group um, 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 is convinced, a concrete proof that actually Jews do control the media. Jews control the opinion-making of the world, and this proof actually is generated from in this, in this provincial, t- in provincial town. And, um, and they very, very quickly um, um, end up finishing this text, published under a slightly different, different title, in a Petersburg newspaper, uh, which is owned and run by Kishnev's leading anti-Semite, Khrushchevan. And... Um, and, um, and the text and the text eventually um, tr- um, transmuted uh, from its, its, its Ukrainian origins to, to Russian eventually comes to be the most notorious and long-standing anti-Semitic text in history, the Protocols, the Elders of Zion. Its origins, in other words, are purely local, purely domestic, the, um, and um, and, um, and it, it eventually becomes, for reasons we could talk about later during the question-answer period, if you wish, um, the only anti-Semitic text that actually continues to have legs to this pres- present day and is a direct result of a reading of the, the, the Kishna pogrom. Now, this forgery, typologically... Now, the, 
the authors of the protocols are what would eventually come to be known as the protocols know that they're putting words into the mouth of the so-called elder of the Jews. It's, 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 it's built almost like talk radio. And you have actually the elder of the Jews speaking and actually talking about his design to take over the world, um, which is part of the reason, I think, for its continued power. It's, it's, not a, it, it's not a story told elsewhere. It's actually, you actually have the voice of the elder speaking. The authors clearly know that these aren't the actual words of the elder, but they're convinced that if they actually could tie the elder down, like in a scene in Homeland, and, um, and, and get him to confess his designs, this is what he would say. Um, at, at, at the same time, another text surfaces that has in its own way an immense impact on um, the Jew- Jewish history and is written not by anti-Semites, but almost certainly either by Jews or by ra- political radicals who are sympathetic to Jews. Three weeks after the end of the pogrom, in May 1903, a text surfaces. It's published in the Times of London. Um, uh, it's, uh, the, the correspondent who publishes it is, is expelled from Russia. Um, the text is signed by the Minister of Interior, Pleve. And the text basically is, a, um, is, is structured as a brief um, a message to the Governor General of, of, of Bessarabia, telling him not to intervene in the riot. The text, the so-called Pleve letter, constitutes at the, um, is believed to constitute concrete proof that the Russian government actually is not only behind the Kishna pogrom, but ferments violence, um, um, killings, uh, looting, rapes on its own street. It, um, it appears at, the, at the, the same time or soon after the 1902 um, um, reaffirmation of the exclusion of Chinese um, immigration to the United States at a time when the Anti-Alien Act is being debated in, in England and where there's considerable pressure to actually cut down on the number of Jewish immigrants and other immigrants from Europe. And, and it's largely because of this text that relatively unrestricted Jewish immigration is permitted to the United States up until the First World War with laws changed in the 1920s. The text is a forgery. The, the, we don't know who wrote the text. Um, it was written for the best of reasons. And it was written also by people who no doubt believed, as vastly different as this text is, much like the authors of what would be the protocols, that, they were, that had, they, had they been able to tie Pleva down, this is what he would say. In other words, it was written with sincerity, and it was a forgery. And its impact was enormous not only on the history of Jewish immigration to the United States, but what the text actually substantiated for Jews on the left, eventually Jews, Jews who were liberal, um, Jews like me. What it ended up substantiating was that the arch-conservative regime in the world um, actually fermented attacks on its own streets against Jews. There were many reasons why Jews gravitated toward the left and eventually toward liberalism, and many reasons why, as one sociologist has put it, Jews live typically like Episcopalians but vote like African Americans. But, um, but one of the prime reasons, one of the prime reasons for this phenomenon, a phenomenon to the present day in the United States, is because of the Pleva letter, is because of a forgery. I underline this because 
it's crucial to note, and it's something that I've wrestled with ever since while I was writing this book, is that um, it's not only uh, people, if you will, on the right who are captured by mythology. All of us are shaped by mythologies. I know the Plevel letter wasn't accurate, and that doesn't change my political views. Um, it doesn't alter them. Um, mythology captures all of us and, um, and, and shapes our Weltanschauung, and, and, and that's certainly true with regard to the, um, to the Plevel letter. I, while writing this book, I, was, I benefited from um, the discovery of previously unknown um, material it's hard to even call it archival material. It was really just, as it turned out, material on a shelf in, in Brookline that um, was some of the most sensitive material about Khrushchevan that would, could conceivably have existed. Now, Khrushchevan himself, uh, he, he dies at the age of 49 in uh, 1909, and, um, and he uh, recedes from history until fairly recently. Um, he's now in, um, in the area of, of current Moldova, uh, wedged between Ukraine and, um, and Romania, um, seen as a kind of ideological pioneer, uh, a, um, a champion of, uh, of anti-liberalism, of anti-Semitism, of homophobia, um, and of uh, what's called in that region Christian socialism. Um, um, and, and this was the, the Khrushchevan who seemed to have existed and, um, and been a totem of um, the Ru Russian anti-Semitism and, and a figure who has been revived in this highly uh, combustible part of the former Soviet Union. Uh, when I, once I thought I was finished, finished with this book, I was given a tip. Uh, what I'm going to be relating to you is an archival story. The, Historians, we, we mostly just sit in our rooms and write. That's, that's, that's what we do. And, um, and in a work like this, you have to traverse lots of different languages. Our adventure stories are stories in the archive. That's when we get out. <laughs> and, and, um, and what I'm going to relate to you briefly is, 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 is a moment. I mean, other people go to clubs. We, we go to archives. Um, the... Um, uh, Anyway, uh, I, I just came up with that. Um, the, um, I, I heard from a German colleague of mine, there's a small group of us who were working on this first, the most obscure version of the protocols, that there was someone, this um, former uh, Moldovan Jew who lived in, down the street from uh, Fenway in Brookline who had something. And I was off to my last trip in, in Chisinau, uh, Chisinau the next day. It's been renamed um, Chisinau from Kishnev. And, um, and I went to see him. And I'm sitting together with him. He's a former journalist in, in Chisinau and his wife, uh, Luda, in the living room. And um, we're talking. And then an, after an hour or two, he, he takes this large um, uh, white file from uh, a, a shelf in his um, small, modest apartment and puts it on my lap. And what I realized fairly soon is that these are incredibly sensitive documents of Khrushchevans. Um, it turns out this um, um, uh, Misha Khazin, who I was visiting, um, had written a history of a psychiatric hospital at the edge of Chisinau. And um, 
Khrushchev's nephew was an inmate in the psychiatric hospital. And then um, he died. The Soviet Union imploded. Um, the belongings were now, the Yiddish word is hefkervelt, belongings belonged to nobody. Um, and, um, and, uh, and Chazin was given these documents, uh, the documents of the nephew. And the nephew, in turn, it seems clear, was given these documents because these were Khrushchev's most sensitive documents. And the nephew was like a son to him, and Khrushchev died childless for reasons that will be clear in a moment. Now, remember, I, Khrushchev is, was known, is known to this day um, as um, one of the great um, emblems of not anti-Semitism, but homophobia, anti-capitalism, etc. Um, among these papers was an adolescent diary that he kept at the age of 15 or 16, where he speaks um, uh, with great um, vividness about um, his, the sex that he, he's having with a, a Cossack of, of the male persuasion and how he wishes he was born a lady. And um, what, what became um, obvious in going through these documents was, um, was that uh, Khrushchev's sister um, ran away with a Jew named Bronstein um, and um, settled in, initially in New York where he was a shamus, a sexton in a synagogue. Eventually they moved to Baltimore because too many people connect her with Khrushchevan. And, um, and, and also, and this is in a passing reference in the nephew's own memoirs, but I can't imagine he would have made this up. We did know that Khrushchevan lost his mother at the age of one, and he, he had a rather distant relationship with his stepmother. Um, his nephew insists that his stepmother was Jewish, and, um, and, and no doubt then converted. It, it's the sort of story that if, rather than working with the nonfiction editor at Norton, I was working with the fiction editor at Norton, and I, if I had given him or her um, this, this text, um, they would have told me, life is not like this, and, and please rewrite this and just sort of, you know, take out some of these absurd details, um, um, stranger, stranger than fiction. And, um, but what I also learned, no less pertinent, was that Khrushchevan, who was considered at the time um, the most powerful and well-placed anti-Semite in Russia, experienced serial bankruptcy. Um, his, there were bailiffs who assessed his, his, his belongings, rather sparse belongings. I know the kind of wood that his bookshelves were made out of. His, his desk was made out of. He has so little money that he tries to sell his library um, and even his, his printing presses. In other words, um, just once you begin to scratch beneath the surface of what you assume you, you know, um, you learn how little that you actually actually know, and I was able to include much of this in the book as as well. Um, let me um, let me turn to the, the very last chapter, and uh, a chapter of the book that I, I knew almost nothing about nothing about until I had to know um, a good deal about it. So, um, in in the midst of this enormous hubbub about the pogrom, um, and a hubbub in the United States that's generated in no small measure by uh, William Randolph Hearst. And um, tell me if this reminds you of anyone. William Randolph Hearst inherits his money. Um, I, I, I've just started. <laughs> okay. Uh, he inherits his money. Um, he's, um, he's, um, he has a, um, the beginning of a thriving business, but he's hungry for political power. 
Um, he's hoping to run either for the Democratic ticket for the governor of New York or perhaps for the Democratic ticket uh, for the, for the, for, to run for the presidency. And, and in New York, there's already a politically a vibrant, numerous Jewish community that he begins to court. And he, and he places enormous emphasis on the Kishnev, the Kishnev pogrom. Uh, he, he sends to Kishnev this, uh, this practice journalist, Michael David, who is actually credited as the founder of the British Labor Party, uh, who ends up writing the first um, best-selling book on the Jews of Russia based on his reportage for the Hearst Press, and who just parenthetically, and I did not include this in the book because I couldn't really prove it, um, who, the word pale is in the subtitle of his book on the Kishina pogrom. And of course, the, the word pale ends up being the term that's widely used to describe the areas, the 15 provinces in Russia where the vast majority of Jews end up living until, until the Russian Revolution. The word pale is not a translation from the Russian. The literal translation for the Russian is line of settlement, not pale of settlement. But the term pale is actually widely used in Irish culture to describe the fortified area around medieval Dublin. It's, it's not unlikely that actually the common usage of the term pale actually comes from an Irish journalist and, um, and then is introduced into the, into the popular, popular Jewish, Jewish imagination. But be that as it may, um, there's, um, there ends up being a huge amount of talk about pogroms. And, um, and concomitantly, a good deal of comment, of, of comment in um, a whole slew of independent African-American newspapers um, um, about um, expressing sympathy for the Jews of Russia, but a degree of exasperation as to how such attention has been paid to um, the, uh, the tragedies of the Jews of Russia, while there's barely any attention given to the um, incidents of, of lynching in the United States. Um, the left largely ignored lynching. The Socialist Party largely ignored lynching because of comp- a possible competition between black workers and, 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 and white workers. And, and by and large, lynching ended up being blamed on the victims themselves, um, blamed on, on, on uh, African-American uh, uh, sexual appetite, on uh, African-American competition with white workers, African-Americans working in close, close cooperation with city bosses. In much the same way that at the time, among many Russians, not even avowed anti-Semites, pogroms were blamed on Jews. Pogroms were often blamed on Jewish um, economic rapacity, on, on Jewish radicalism, etc. And so an entire body of, 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 of journalistic literature ended up being generated um, in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom about uh, why is it that this, these, these attacks in faraway Russia were the focus of such attention in the United States while there was barely any tension in um, um, on lynching, even the m- most famous of all African-American leaders in the United States, Booker T. Washington, uh, refused to condemn lynching uh, by and large uh, at all while condemning the Kishna pogrom. This had no institutional impact until after um, 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 the 1905-1906 pogroms, when an a, uh, unusual, remarkable couple, William English Walling, who becomes the first chair of the NAACP, and his wife, Anna Strunsky, I'm happy to say a Stanford graduate, um, an um, erstwhile lover of Jack London. They co-wrote a book together on the nature of male and female, female love. Um, she's fluent in Russian and Yiddish. Um, they end up marrying, traveling together to Russia. 
He writes a book called Russia's Message, which ends up being the major book in a Western language about Russian radicalism before John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. And um, on the stage of Cooper Union, that marvelous institution that intersects the village and the Lower East Side um, um, in New York, um, in a, a book launch for this book, Anna Strunsky quite spontaneously says, you know, as bad as pogroms are, lynchings are as bad, if not worse. And that comment, that very night, inspires a series of meetings into the night and a meeting in their apartment in the West 30s um, that, that, that serves as the, um, the meeting that creates what comes to be known as the NAACP. Um, it's, um, it's, it's created in 1908 with a different name, and then the name is changed. And uh, William Walling becomes his first chair. Uh, 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 um, a side story to all this, and, um, and a story that's so typical in the writing of the history of women. It's Anna Strunsky's idea, but um, she's suffered from a series of miscarriages. The, she's unable to even go into the living room at the meeting that plans the NAACP in her own apartment because um, she, she's, um, she's wrestling with the prospect of a miscarriage. She's unable to actually go to the founding meeting of the NAACP where her husband is named chair because she's also worried about a miscarriage. Um, she's the woman in many ways who inspires the idea of the NAACP and barely is mentioned in any history of the NAACP. It's um, just part and parcel of, of what the writing of so much of women's history is about. I'll read the end of the book and then we'll talk. Okay. The city at the heart of the story, renamed Chisinau, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the creation of an independent Moldova, is a place known mostly in recent years as one of the world's notorious depots for international prostitution, the capital of a fast-crumbling nation-state, bedeviled by corruption, petty and grandiose, with an ambiguous identity readily absorbable, either into that of Romania or perhaps less likely Russia. Chisinau itself possesses a certain great tired grandeur, a few largest parks in the city center, an imposing arch just outside its main state buildings, a beautiful ethnographic museum situated in a leafy part of town, peppered with some of the city's more fashionable houses and embassies. To be sure, nearly all its streets are badly potholed and in need of repair, Police corruption accompanied by shakedowns of foreigners are no less a fixture of the local scene than its undrinkable water. There are hints of gentrification in a cluster of the city's oldest neighborhoods whose decrepitude, the newly rich, their source of wealth at best legally ambiguous, have designated as enticing. Most of the city's Jews decamped long ago for Israel or the United States. A local literary scholar whose specialty is Kushavan's fiction, for which he had, had, has great, had great admiration, explained to me as we were sitting at the local Jewish community library that had Jews not left Kishinev in the 1990s, it would now be faring far better economically. Yet she had insisted just a few moments earlier that the real reason for the outbreak of the 1903 pogrom was that the city was packed with far too many Jews, with this justly exasperating locals. Though pressed, she acknowledged no contradiction in what she had just said. The city's grim past retains a palpable presence, not only because of the pogrom's lingering infamy, but also because so many of its original crumbling buildings, despite a massive earthquake in 1940, and of course the devastation of its Jewish population in World War II, have survived largely as a result of Kishinev's chronic poverty. It's a shambling, unpretentious place. 
surprisingly lush, village-like in some of its corners, still bounded at its northern edge by the unassuming but harsh eyesore, the River Beak. A cement bridge stretches across this marshland, with the old town just around the corner, a quick walk from Asia Street, now renamed, uh, a tenement brushing up against the street's clapboard structures, which have weathered so much with no evidence. Needless to say, this was once and still remains one of the most storied sites of the recent Jewish past. This was the town where a large number of the Jews killed in the pogrom were killed. The dusty street is, is crowded in daytime with earnest, hardworking locals, women with their shopping bags, school children, there's an elementary school nearby, men lugging tools, densely housed, a hodgepodge of Soviet age construction and century old piles. It's a place that has inspired lessons of heroism and shame, cowardice and militancy, loathing or trust for Gentiles, and as many would come to believe, it was here in this crowded alleyway where exile reached his sudden bloody end. Thank you. Let's talk. Plenty of time for questions and discussion, but we have to use this microphone. So uh, I'll run it around, uh, but please use the microphone. So you're going to start. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for your presentation. Um, so, you know, the pogrom that you describe in your book got a lot of publicity. Had there been prior anti-Semitic acts and uh, maybe even worse pogroms in Kishinev? No, not in Kishinev. Um, there, was a, there were a wave of anti-Jewish attacks between 1881 and 1882 and some sporadic attacks in the 1890s. But interestingly, the term pogrom, and I didn't mention this earlier, the term pogrom is just one of a medley of terms used for anti-Jewish attacks and for, for riots. And most of the riots in Imperial Russia at the time are, are rural riots, not urban riots. And, mo and, and most of them do not involve Jews. They're mostly um, uh, food riots. And um, the term pogrom ends up being etched onto the Jewish consciousness and beyond in the wake of the Kishnev pogrom. The term itself is, when used in the um, uh, English language press, the German press, the French press, um, through 1903, is either italicized or defined. By 1904, it's as well known a word as vodka or tsar. And what it comes to be known as, and this is in the wake of the Plevet letter, is a government condoned or sponsored attack against Jews. Um, and that's, that's, what it, that's what the term ends up being. Being, being defined as uh, in dictionary definitions and elsewhere. And that's because of the belief that the Kishnev pogrom is government condoned or, or coordinated, and that belief is incorrect. And, um, and, um, and the term ends up being immeasurably more elastic than any other term describing Jewish atrocity. The Holocaust is very specific. Um, pogrom ends up being used eventually to describe at medieval anti-Jewish attacks, all sorts of attacks, attacks in Salonika, uh, the Kahan Commission that investigates the um, tragedy of Sabra and Shatila uh, describes the event as a pogrom. And um, it ends up um, achieving a, an extraordinary promiscuity. Other comments or questions? Thank you. What's the relevance of the pogroms to uh, 2019 current international global melting pot we have? 
All right. So um, I prepared for this one. So um, <laughs> what did you learn from this book that has any relevance to today? Is that a, a reasonable recasting of your question? Let, let me start with that, and then I'll come. come to, but, but I'll tell me if I'm, I'm not understanding you. Um, the first thing I learned was that um, hatred, anti-Jewish hatred, say, in Kishinev, is relatively incohate. There are all sorts of feelings that are felt toward Jews in um, April 1903. There's admiration. Um, there, are, there are numerous incidents of Jews who are fearing or being attacked, running into the courtyards or the homes of non-Jews, fully expecting to be protected and being protected. And um, um, it's a vicious, terrible anti-Jewish attack in which 900 are arrested in a town of 100,000. And um, so um, um, the, the, the notion that consequently Kishinev and consequently Imperial Russia is a hotbed of, 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 of anti-Jewish animus is, isn't accurate. It's not entirely inaccurate. It's not entirely accurate. Um, what I did learn um, from this event, and this is in line with other uh, recent studies of, of anti-Semitism, is that such attacks rarely, if ever, occur without intellectuals or leaders, political leaders or otherwise, giving anti-Jewish um, animus coherence. And that's what Khrushchevan did. Um, uh, that's what so often happens in, in racialist attacks, that um, in this particular instance, there's an adolescent boy who disappears in an adjacent town, um, and, um, and Jews in that town are accused of engaging in ritual murder. Now, ritual murder is a very hard, it's very hard to disprove something that doesn't exist. Um, and um, this was a problem in the Bayless case in 1913. Typically, the, what you do in the law court in a case of ritual murder is that you investigate, or what a coroner does, and this was true of the coroner's reports in this town near Kishinev, um, just a month or two, a month or so before the pogrom, is that you, you investigate whether the blood of the child was drained. Because ostensibly, in, in a ritual murder, you drain the blood in order to use it for Jewish ritual purposes, presumably during Passover. The problem with that, that is self-evident. In other words, what that, that, what that implicit is that is that if the, if the blood was drained, it was a ritual murder, but ritual murder doesn't exist. So um, um, it's an enormous conundrum to disprove something that doesn't exist. And, um, but by and large, one lesson that I learned, and tell me if this is in any way pertinent to your question, is, um, is the way in which this kind of animus requires the coherence of either a political leader an ideological leader to give it voice. And if, if, if that comment doesn't have any pertinence to today, I don't know what comment does. <laughs> so um, so I, I would start there. And um, yes. So how many of those political leaders are giving, breathing life into such thoughts around the world right now? 40, so, 30? So you know you're speaking to an historian, right? And, um, and, and so, look, it's... Um, I might have opinions about the present, but I know with some authority about the past. And knowing with some authority about the past is no small feat. I mean, how many rooms have you been in with people, and then you left those rooms, and then the people in the room reconstructed what happened in vastly different ways? As an historian, I'm not in the room. 
Okay, I have to reconstruct those rooms without having been there. And, um, and we construct those rooms with what we call, call archival evidence. And all archives are, are the papers that happen to have fallen onto the floor and then put into files somehow. And then we read those and we try to reconstruct the past. So the present I can talk about as coherently, I suspect, as you and your friends. The past, you know, ask me questions about the past. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.